This morning's sermon is from Zechariah chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. I'll be reading that for us. Uh, Feel free to follow along in your Bible or on the screen behind me. Uh, Hear the word of God. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. Good morning. All right, kiddos, off you go. And uh, as they go to the rear, let me uh, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, once again, we do thank you for your word. We pray that we would have ears to ear, eyes to see. May we not be like the Israelites of old that did not hear or pay attention to you. God, we pray we need grace. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, good morning yet again. Let me uh, introduce us by introduce us into this book by telling you a bit of a story. Some of you are very familiar with the story, but uh, the year of this story occurs in the year 1517 in a place in Germany, a small town in Germany by the name of Wittenberg, Wittenberg, Germany. There had recently been a flurry of excitement in that city due to a travel that had come a traveler that had come nearby that town. That traveler's name was Johann Tetzel. And Tetzel had been commissioned at the time by the Roman Catholic Church to travel and raise money for the building of St. Peter's Basilica. Uh, and the way the, the Catholic Church had decided to raise money for the building of that, uh, for the building of that building was by having people like Tetzel go and sell these things called indulgences. Indulgence was a piece of paper that had the pardon of the Catholic Church for the forgiveness of sins. So you'd buy one of these things and it would, supposedly give you forgiveness of sin. So, for instance, um, if uh, the Catholic Church believes in something called purgatory, and so after you die, if you want a little, uh, a little faster time onto heaven, you could buy one of these. It would give you some, a quicker path onto heaven. Or if a deceased family member had already died, you can buy one of these and sort of apply it to them, and off they would go quicker on to heaven. This was thought to be the case. And so plenty of people streamed to that nearby town in Wittenberg. Many of them were poor to spend what little money they had on these indulgences. And meanwhile, back in the town of Wittenberg, there was a Roman Catholic professor and priest whose name was Martin Luther. And he'd heard about this activity, and he was appalled. He was certain that the Catholic Church wouldn't agree with these false promises of forgiveness, and so he drafted up something called the 95 Statements, 95 Theses. And he nailed those 95 Theses to the church door there in Wittenberg to be read. And uh, the very first of those statements was significant. It said as follows, 
When our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said, repent, he willed that the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. You see, Luther recognizes that these indulgences were striking at the heart of the gospel. He knew that if you all you needed to do is buy a piece of paper to have forgiveness, then no one would actually repent. They just keep on living however they pleased, skip the need to repent, to live a different, a new, holy life. Instead, they could just live however they pleased and just buy forgiveness. Mankind has always seemed interested in finding the easiest way to heaven. There is within us this instinct to live as we please instead of living however it would please the Lord. Just imagine for a moment a world where all that God required was mere sentiment. Acknowledge that He's real. Acknowledge that He's kind. Acknowledge that He's loving and forgiving. And then just live however you want. Pay little attention to Him. Save the occasional nod or doing some religious thing. Uh, then live however you would like. God would then repay you by... With, he would then repay your good sentiment by pouring down blessings upon you. And when you died, He would send you off to heaven. No need of repentance. No need of holiness. No need to change anyone's mind. Confront any altered way of thinking. Just sentiment. Imagine such a God and imagine such a world. Well, you don't have to. Not only was that the kind of God that the people of Wittenberg believed in in 1517, nor is it uh, the only kind of God that many confessing Christians even believe in America in 2019. Before all of these, it was thought to be the God of the Israelites in the Old Covenant. So welcome, friends, to the book of Zechariah, those sticky pages of the Bible. The message of this book is meant to confront this way of thinking. It's a call to not only repent of sins, but to repent of the sins and then look to this king that will going to come that would assuage those sins, take them away, to swallow them up and then usher in a world of righteousness, a world of blessing and healing. But again, it would be dependent upon the repentance and obedience of the people of the Israelites who had recently returned from an exile of the land. In Zechariah chapter 6, verse 13 to 15, you get kind of the heart of the book. And it says the following. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. And so you have a rebuilt temple that has a priest king sitting in the midst of it. And it will come, the prophet Zechariah says, if the people will diligently obey the voice of the Lord their God, if they repent and live a holy life. Now, if that sounds a bit conditional, well, you're right in hearing it that way. Zechariah, we should understand, is situated in what we call the Old Testament, which, of course, is situated in and under the Old Covenant. This is before the time in which Christ would come to inaugurate a new covenant, which are very related. But nevertheless, I'm going to help us get into the history of this book in just a moment. But for now, we need to kind of have a bit of a primer on the Old Testament, sort of how it works and what's going on. So the Old Testament documents the years preceding the coming of Christ. 
It speaks of God and His work amongst His people, Israel. Uh, and they had a covenant. God had made a covenant with them. And every book in the Old Testament, that's the first part of the Bible, every book in the Old Testament from Genesis down to Malachi is meant to point to Jesus. It's meant that way. Because, and don't miss this, every book reveals that mankind cannot earn his way to heaven. That's the great and clear testimony of the Old Testament. You'll see that as we go through Zechariah. Uh, We're going to find that in Zechariah, they can't obey. So they need this king to come. So the Old Testament is meant to show that we are unable to be righteous on our own. And so we need someone to come uh, and do and be righteous for us. So Zechariah is what's called a post-exilic prophet. A prophet is not someone that just tells the future in the Old Testament. A prophet is anyone that is speaking the words of God, things that are true about God. Uh, But also this notion of being a post-exilic prophet means that Zechariah is speaking God's word post or after the exile of Israel. In other words, this book in Zechariah, just like you see it's at the back end of the Old Testament, it's happening at the back end of the series of events in the Old Testament. It's happening towards the end. Zechariah has a couple uh, contemporaries at the time that are prophesying as well as him. Uh, We have Haggai and Malachi, two other contemporaries. Haggai is preaching two months before him, before Zechariah. Malachi will come after him. But those are the only three post-exilic prophets. And after those three prophets speak, they then enter into 400 years of silence from God, wherein Christ will then rise up and speak as the answer to those prophecies. We'll learn more about Haggai in just a moment, but with all of this in in view, let's dive into the message of the book. We're going to get more into the history in just a minute, but two points this morning. uh, Two points, the angry, first of all, the angry and personal yet gracious God. And secondly, the repentant and reconciled man. So first off, the angry and personal yet gracious God. Looking down there at the text, uh, because of the dating we see there in verse 1, we can actually get really specific as to when all of these events are happening. The second year of King Darius' reign, we know from history, would have been 520 B.C., before Christ. So I've already mentioned that Haggai is prophesying to the Israelites at the same time, but we also have the books of Ezra and Nehemiah that are also documenting this same period, and they corroborate that Zechariah is also prophesying to these people, to the Israelites at this time. In fact, in Nehemiah 12.16, we see that Zechariah is actually from a family of priests. So he's an interesting guy, Zechariah. He's actually a kind of prophet-priest. And the word of the Lord comes to him, to Zechariah, saying, The Lord is very angry with your fathers. That is, the fathers of the generation that Zechariah is speaking to. Now we need to ask, why is he so angry with them? Well, slide down to verse 4. You see it there. Zechariah says to the current generation, Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. And so the Lord is angry at the fathers of this generation because they were acting evil, which means they were not reflecting the God that had redeemed them for himself to display his glory. So remember, friends, that God is good. And so to be opposed to him is to do what is evil. So to be clear about that, that doesn't mean when it says they're doing evil deeds, that if we were to show up there, that everybody's just killing each other and stealing things. It was just awful all the time. Those things were happening. 
But the heart of these evil ways and these evil deeds is, yes, uh, idolatry, worshiping other gods. But we also see the heart of the idolatry and their indifference to God. It's clear, in fact, that many of them were keeping up their religious traditions. We know from other prophets, they're actually going to sort of church and taking the Lord's Supper, as it were. They're taking sacrifices and things like that, in addition to worshiping other gods and doing other things, being indifferent to the word of the Lord. It's just that these guys simply didn't care enough to change when the prophets spoke to them. They didn't care enough to change. The word of the Lord came and they just didn't care. And friends, if you don't know this, it's really important that you understand the opposite of love is indifference. That's when you know someone doesn't care, when they just don't change. And so the Israelites had received grace. They'd received love more than anyone else on planet Earth. God had revealed himself to them. He carried them along. He defeated their enemies. He gave them a home. And how do they respond? Well, they come into the land and they act evil. They just indifference to them. That's one of the clearest signs of their evil was their indifference to the word of the Lord when it was confronted, uh, when it was confronting them. And I want you to notice that the indifference wasn't just some abstract indifference to a bunch of rules. Did you see it in the text? The Lord says they didn't hear or pay attention to me. Me. See, this was personal. Because the God of the Bible is personal. He's a personal God. To be indifferent to the word of God is to be indifferent to God himself, not just some abstract rules or abstract statutes or whatever the case may be. It's to be indifferent to God himself. And you think about the people that are preaching to these guys before Zechariah, before the exile. The, the guys that are preaching to them is Isaiah and Ezekiel and Amos, all these guys. Haggai, or Haggai was afterwards, but you have uh, Jeremiah is preaching to them, as we'll see in a minute. All of these people, they're, they're preaching the word of God to them, and they don't care enough to listen and change. They're so set in their ways. And so why would the Lord not only be angry against them, why would he not be very angry against them? They were personally ignoring the God of the universe that had redeemed them for himself. He was so good to them, and they just didn't care. And you've got to keep in mind, these evil ways of Israel had been going on since the very beginning of their redemption from Egypt and all the way through the eventual exile to Babylon, out of the land to Babylon in 587 B.C. So let me do the math on that for you. That's 860 plus years. With a few exceptions, Israel on the whole had been marked by this indifference and their idolatry. The Lord, the the sort of pattern is the Lord would get angry at them because of their disobedience or their indifference or their idolatry. Uh, He would send prophets. They would warn them about coming judgment. There would be this kind of faint repentance. God would then relent. And then they would go right back to what they were doing before. And then it would sort of go through the cycle all over again. Some call the Old Testament period the shark tooth period where Israel is sort of rising and falling for hundreds of years. But there was more falling than there was rising. It just kept getting worse. And yet the Lord, here's the amazing thing. The Lord, through that 860-year period, He remained faithful all the way through to Israel. Even though He was rightfully very angry. And so eventually, the Lord had had enough, and like Adam and Eve, God exiled His people from the land, from, in particular, Jerusalem to Babylon, east of Israel. Again, remember, Adam and Eve were exiled and went east. So in the same way, his people were exiled and went east because of their disobedience. 
God exiled them to discipline them, to chasten them, to learn. They go to uh, Babylon, which is some 900 miles away, uh, which would be about the same between D.C. and St. Louis. It's about how far they had to go. The northern tribes we know were actually taken over by Assyria in about 722 B.C. And as I mentioned, the southern tribes are exiled in 587 B.C. When the Lord used the nation of Babylon, He used that nation as a tool of Babylon to destroy the temple where the presence of the Lord was said to reside and then exile those people out. Destroy the temple, which was the symbol of God's presence of where it was, and then carry his people off, carry them, uh, all his people away to an enemy pagan foreign land in Babylon, leaving the land in ruins. And as the Lord says here, the former prophets had warned the Israelite that all of this was going to happen if they didn't repent and come back to the Lord. You can see this in Jeremiah 25.4. This is before the exile. This is one of the prophets warning them about this coming judgment if they didn't get it right, if they didn't repent. Jeremiah 25.4, he says, You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets. And then it goes on in verses 8 and 9, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants. So God's word prophesied that all of this was going to happen, which this is, by the way, some people that don't believe the Bible, they, they have to come up with all kinds of things to try to make sense to how did they would have known this. Because it was all happening just as the Lord said in the exact time in which it said. But the Israelites, they hear all of these warnings to repent, but they sort of responded, yeah, right, we're God's people, it'll be fine, no worries. And yet it happened. God did exile them. God's word was true. You can see that reflected in verses 5 and 6 of Zechariah chapter 1 when he says, Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? In other words, the Lord is saying through Zechariah, I told you I was going to do this and I did it. My word prevailed and overtook the words of your fathers who said that it wouldn't. So Israel, in other words, presumed upon the grace of God. They didn't listen and it cost them. It cost them the land and the temple as a result lie in ruins. Now remember, friends, though, Zechariah is a post-exilic prophet, post-exile prophet. So it's been now, at this point, some 70 years since that exile happened. In fact, a short time before this, some 42,000 men, women, and children were allowed to come back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple with great anticipation because the Lord not only told Israel that they would be carried away by Babylon, He also said right after that in Jeremiah 25, verses 11 to 13, that the exile would last 70 years. And at the end of that 70 years, things were going to be great. They were going to come back and it was going to be great. And once again... Amazing thing of God's word. One of the many reasons why we trust it to be God's word is because it's true about prophecy before it happened. And that's exactly what happened. God does crush Babylon at this time, thus bringing in the reign of Persia. And it's the Persian king Cyrus that then commissions Ezra to go back and bring people and rebuild the temple. All of that happens. They begin rebuilding the temple once they come back with great anticipation, again, thinking glory is going to come. But right at the beginning, right after they start rebuilding this temple, some people around there, some foreigners around there, begin to intimidate those Israelites, and they get scared and they stop working. 
And that is exactly where Zechariah enters the picture. It's when he's preaching. A mass the size of Nationals Park. If you've been to Nationals Park, sort of a, a, a group of people about that big, imagine it being full. They've come back in great anticipation, having realized the Lord's word was true. It's been almost 70 years. They're thinking they're going to re-enter. The golden age is going to be great. They come back, they start the work, and then they stop the work. And here they are, seemingly back in the same place they were before the exile. And once again, they need prophets to call them to repentance, to get to work on the temple, to rebuild the temple. Listen to Haggai. That's the book just before this one. He's been prophesying two months before Zechariah. Listen to what he says. We can see really the heart of the issue here. Haggai prophesies in Haggai 1, 2 to 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. You kind of hear the voice of the people there. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Haggai 1.9, you looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. In other words, the returning Israelites thought they could just sort of show up and God was going to bless them. And they got on with building their own houses and just living it up. We can imagine them sort of commissioning Joanna Gaines to come in and just sort of remodel everything, right? Fix this, do that. This looks great. Put that over there. And meanwhile, the temple is lying in ruins. A visual representation of the hearts of the Israelites. That they're more interested in their own projects. The priority of themselves over and against the work of the Lord. Revealing that at the end of the day, they just don't care enough about the Lord, even if they say they do. And Haggai and Zechariah are coming in here saying, guys, God's very angry with your fathers because of what they've done. And here you are doing it again. Guys, you need to repent and get to work. The Lord is very angry because Israel is acting like a constant adulterous wife. And so what should be amazing to us is not that the Lord is angry. What should be amazing to us is that He has been so patient with Israel for so long. I mean, just think about this, guys. We get angry the second someone cuts us off on the road. Right? And yet the Lord is angry and yet He remains patient because He loves them. And even after he has exercised judgment on his people and exiled them and brought them back, they still sit on their hands. And yet he doesn't give up. And he sends more prophets to call them to repentance. And so Restoration Church, may it not be said of us that we do not listen to the word of the Lord. May it not be said that we do not pay attention to the calls to repent. May it not be lost on us that our sin is a personal attack upon a God that has been so good to us. And so I wonder this morning, are you listening to the word of the Lord? Are you listening to the word? Are you interested in working on and in the Lord's house? 
Or are you more interested in building your own house as his house lies in need of repair all around you? That's the question we all have to ask throughout this whole book. The Lord is asking us in verse 4, are you paying attention to me? Friends, when I leave the city, I'm often asked, what's it like pastoring in Washington, D.C.? What are the kinds of issues that you have to face there? And uh, I respond to them every single time. I said, it's the exact same thing that you have to deal with in your own city. Apathy. Apathy. Too many people take the name of Jesus and just don't care enough to listen, repent, and walk in obedience. I think I've heard Eugene Peterson say this, that it's not hard to get someone interested in the Lord. What's hard is to have a sustained interest in the Lord. Too many people are more interested in living how they want, doing what they want. When the word proposes or directly says something against the way they want to live, they're not interested in doing the kinds of things that will bring meaningful change. They want to manage their sin, not kill it. Because they're most interested in building their own houses. Similar to the Israelites, a lot of these people are people who take the name of Christ, even are members of good churches. I know this, friends, because it describes me. When this is happening, I was just thinking about this week, the times at which I look at my calendar and think, when's that, when, when am I going to have me time? There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I would say that it's important. Matter of fact, I would even say that God gave us a, 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 a day of the week in order to sort of slow down. But there's this frame in me sometimes that is often looking at my calendar so I can get things to be clear and comfortable, not cluttered and costly. Not risky for the sake of Christ. Instead, my bent so often is try to get back to easy stuff. Instead of seeing a full calendar as opportunities to love my neighbor with the love of Christ, love the hurting, love the lost, love the wayward, I can wish those things weren't there so I can busy myself with my interests. And again, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't rest, shouldn't have time for ourselves. It does. But this text does mean that our lives should not be bent towards serving ourselves but serving the Lord by serving others in Jesus' name. Making disciples that delight in the supremacy of Christ. That's our lives as Christians. And where we don't do that, where we ignore that call, we sin. And our sin, as we see so clearly in this passage, is a personal attack against a personal God that has made us for Himself. His Word is a good gift to confront us in our sin. And the question is again, will we listen? Will we listen? Will we put down the priority of our personal projects and tend to the work of the Lord? Or will we go on busying ourselves with our own house, neglecting the work of the Lord, taking, 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 not giving? I realize that when I say that, some of you say, well, Nathan, that's harsh. It's a hard line to draw. And I agree, it is. But friends, I ask, is it true? Is it true? It is a harsh and hard line, but is it true? Didn't Jesus say in Luke eleven twenty six, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
Is this the word of the Lord? Is this what the word teaches? And if so, will we listen to it? Pay attention to it? Or will we be like these Israelites and take the name of God's people and wait to be served by the Lord as his work lies undone all around us? Folks, this cotton candy version of Christianity that emphasizes the benefits of the gospel and minimizes or even erases the demands of the gospel is not only not satisfying to your soul, it's not even real. It's a fake gospel. If you believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is nothing more than praying a prayer, getting baptized, joining a church, showing up to church every now and again, take the Lord's Supper, yet never repenting of sin, never dying to self, never serving others in the grace, mercy, and love of God, never or rarely tending to the work of the house of the Lord, never encouraging the hearts of others, and instead you just live your best life now and just try to fit Jesus in, if that's your version of Christianity, friend, you may have never understood Christianity at all. You may very well be sitting in the audience of Zechariah. Will you hear, verse 4, will you hear or pay attention to the Lord or will you not? Look down there in verse 6 of chapter 1. I want you to see there, the Lord is purposed to deal with us. He was purposed to deal with them and that's still true of us today. He's purposed to deal with us. We see that His Word overtakes man's words. It always has and it always will. God's Word is powerful, it's persistent, and it's proven. Friends, in a society whose understanding of right and wrong is constantly shifting with every generation, God's Word remains true. Either we listen to the Word of the Lord and obey the Word of the Lord knowing it's good for us because it's a good God, or we don't. I recognize that this portion of the serving sort of feels a bit suffocating at this point, doesn't it? It does for me. I wrote that in my sermon notes because that's what I felt like when I was writing it. I don't enjoy lingering in these questions. They feel suffocating. But friends, as hard as it is, we need to sit in these moments. We need to look over there at our paneled houses. And we need to look over to the unfinished work of the house of the Lord and we need to feel that tension. We need to feel that call to die to ourselves and live to God. Because if we don't, if we only emphasize the benefits of God's grace and neglect the call to die to ourselves, we'll forget what we've been saved from and we forget what we'll then be saved to. We'll become lazy and gluttonous like those Israelites. And so I linger in these questions out of love for us. Friends, we have to understand this. The Old Testament is Christian Scripture. It is not ultimately for the Old Covenant people. The Apostle Peter says that explicitly in 1 Peter 10-13. He says that the prophets who prophesied, that's Zechariah to name one, the prophets who prophesied were not serving themselves, he says, but you, the church. Zechariah was the Bible of the church in the, uh, in the early days of Acts. God is very angry with our sin, with our personal projects when we prioritize them over His good intentions, over His Word, because it's Him. And so that question should be asked of you. Maybe go back and reflect on it this afternoon. Are you busied with your own house while the work of the Lord is being neglected all around you? 
And if so, then you might be asking, what do we do? How do we get this right? How can we pay attention to the word of the Lord and hear his word? You may be asking that. And, and also, Nathan, where's all that grace that we've been hearing so much about in Ephesians? Right. Where's that at? Well, the answer to those questions, friends, is found as we move into the second point, the repentant and reconciled people, the repentant and reconciled people. Here comes a big, fresh of air. Take, take a look at verse three, chapter one. This has to be one of the most amazing realities in all of the Bible. I've been sitting on verse three for weeks now, just stunned at it. Verse 2, remember, says the Lord was very angry with your fathers. We've already rehearsed. He should be. And here we find the Israelites not tending to the lessons of those fathers, needing prophets again to remind them to get them going. And on the heels of all of this, what is the response of the Lord? I wonder, what would your response be? If you were sort of their father, if you sort of, right, your kids were in your house and they've been disobedient and you exiled them from their house, right? And then they're like, oh, well, you can come back in. All right. And then they started doing the same thing. What would you be? What would you be doing? Imagine if you did that, if they did that for 800 years. How would you respond? Well, listen to the Lord's response in verse three. The Lord was very angry with their fathers. Therefore, say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts. Return to me. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. That language of the five times the Lord of hosts is emphasizing his strength. And he's saying, just come back. I'll come back to you. The anger of the Lord is kindled to the uttermost and he looks at his betrothed, his beleaguered, selfish and lazy people of Israel who are sitting on their hands again. And he says, return to me and I'll return to you. We would expect the Lord to be harsh and they would even deserve it, right? But instead, God shows them grace again. I was angry with your fathers. I have every reason to be angry with you, but return to me and I'll return to you. And we read in verse 6 that the Israelites seem to repent. The Lord, friends, desperately wants to be reconciled with his people. He doesn't want that thickness in the air. He wants this separation, this pain, this anger, this history. He wants it to be over. I mean, this is a husband who has been cheated on a thousand times. And while he's angry, he says to his wife who has cheated on him yet again, I just want you back. Will you just come back? You come back. I'll come back to you. I... I had to punish. I had to discipline you to understand, to help you understand because you didn't seem to understand. You didn't seem to get it. I had to discipline you. And here I am. I'm, I'm here again. We're having to go through all of this again. I just want you back. Repent. And I'll come back to you. The image here is likened to the story of the prodigal son. Where the younger brother takes his father's possessions, his own, and uses it for himself. And it dries up. And he's out, away, with nothing. And he runs back to his father. And he repents to his father. And what's his father doing? His father's 
looking for him. And he runs to the son and the son runs to him and the son repents and he gives him a huge old bear hug and they have the greatest party of all time. That's the image here. Return. Come back. Stop living for yourselves. Love me. Live for me. And I'll come back. Repent. This is the language that Jesus uses in, of repentance in John 12, 24 and 25 when He says, Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. In other words, friends, if you want to live, you're going to have to die. Die to this world. Die to yourself. Die to your vision of the good life so that you can live to God's vision for the eternally good life. Repentance is a pathway to pleasure. Repentance is the way to reconciliation with a good God. And until that happens, life will never come. But when it does, when you turn from the sin that you committed against God, when you leave the priority of personal projects and take up the work of the house of God out of love for Him, only then will you know and experience the fullness of God's love and grace. That's what the Lord of hosts offered Israel. And guess what? That's what He offers us in Christ. God wanted to return to His people so much that He went to them. He sent His Son because He wanted them to return so desperately. He wants us to return so desperately that He sent His Son. And what was the message of His Son? Return to Me. Repent. And He wanted return so much, God did, that He sent His Son and He took that anger that He had for our sin. And for all those that repent and believe on Christ, that anger doesn't fall on us. Instead, He had to take it out. But Christ was our substitute. And He took it out on Him. That's how much He wants to have us back. He had to do something with the anger. He would not be a just God if He just dismissed His anger against our sin. But instead of throwing it upon us that believe, He puts it on His Son. That's how much He wants us to return. It's amazing. And to know that His anger for us that believe has been assuaged, has been dealt with, we see in the resurrection that it was dealt with. New life. Death preceded life in Christ. And now those that repent of sin and trust in Jesus, guess what? Now we are the temple of God. Now there's no need to go and rebuild a physical temple. Now God takes up residence in us. Can you believe that? I'm a temple. I mean, this is amazing. God, by His grace, allowed me to return to Him and me and Him to me. And He takes up residence inside of me and all those that believe. Now we have the Spirit of God within us. Not just by believing, but by repenting and believing. Turning away from self, living to God. But friends, that work of repentance is not only at the front end of our life with Christ. Remember what Luther said. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, He willed that the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And remember, repentance is not a rude intrusion into our lives, but instead is a gracious invitation to participate in the work of God. More so, it's an invitation to be with Him. Be with Him. 
an invitation into life, into love, and the joy of His people. And so to you, friend, that are not trusting in Christ, whatever it is you're holding on to, whatever you are unwilling to hear or pay attention to the Word of the Lord from, friend, listen, hear the Word of the Lord now. Hear it. Lay down that thing. Let it die. Stop busying yourself with your own house. God is angry with your sin because it is against Him. But listen, He's made a way for His anger against you to be moved off of you and onto His Son. He's made a way for you in Christ to have that anger move off of you and on to His Son. He wants you to return to Him that much. He gives us His Son. And so when Jesus says on the cross, it is finished, what He was saying was, is God's anger against sinners that trust in Jesus. His anger is finished. It's done. It's taken care of. Christ satisfied the penalty for all that believe. And so friend, confess your sin to God. Agree with Him that you deserve judgment just as the Israelites did. But then, say, I trust Jesus to make the payment for me. I repent of my sin. I confess it. I turn away from it. I trust in Jesus. I want to live, Jesus. I want to live and work in your house amongst your people. Uh, I want to stop being so interested in my house. You, God, is who I was made for. You are the one that I sinned against. You are the one I want to live for. Have mercy on me. Forgive me. Return to me so that you would return to me. That I would return to you. You to me. I to you. And then, friend, receive the grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Receive it. And enjoy it forever. And then go over there and get to work on the house. Alongside those other joyful servants that have done the same. And for you, the members of Restoration Church, beloved, you should know God is no longer angry with you. He's not angry with you. In Christ, He's taken away all our sin. All of it. He has pushed it away as far as the east is from the west. And He did it because, beloved, He wanted to return to you and you to Him. That's why He did it. And even if there's something that you've been holding on to, some sin, some frame of mind, some debilitating sin that you have been unwilling to give to Him, your reason for your paneled house, whatever that is, listen, return to the Father and He will return to you. Repent of that sin and know that He will forgive it. Turn it away. The way you reconcile with the Father, whatever that thing is, the way you reconcile, get that out of the air, the way you reconcile the Father who has never left you or forsaken you is by repenting, confessing that sin and walking in a different direction. It's by agreeing that you have been too busy on your house, neglectful of His, neglectful of His Word, neglectful of His body, the church. Go to Him. Give it to Him. Tell Him you want to return. Tell Him you want to repent. And He'll forgive you. Because He wants you. He wants you to be with Him and Him with you. This is what God wants for you. It's what He wants for us as a church. He wants to return to you. He wants the distance that you feel to be put away. And He wants to put you in the harvest fields where you can work for the sake of His glory and your good. And so die, beloved, 
Die to yourself. Live to God. Look to Jesus. Receive His love. Receive His forgiveness. Return to Him and He will return to you. This is the kind of God that He is. In Christ, He's no longer angry with you. You don't need to punish yourself. You don't need to keep your distance. You repent of your sin. You return to Him. He will return to you. He has purposed to deal with you. And His Word overtakes the words of men. Come. Repent. and Receive the goodness and the gladness of the Father's love. Let me pray for us now. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray, and whatever it is that may be on your mind, whatever your paneled house is, I'm just going to give a moment of pause in a moment. You just repent. Just give that to Just confess that to God. And say, God, I agree that I've been doing this. I give it to Jesus. And I receive your forgiveness. And then I'll come back and close in prayers. Father, we thank You for Your Word. You would not love us if You were not honest with us. We thank You, God, that You confront us even when we'd rather not be confronted. We know that You love us because You confront us. God, thank You for Jesus. Thank You that He takes away all of Your anger against us. So now we confess to You. In Christ, we have redemption. The forgiveness of all of our sins. Thank you, God, for offering us a way back to you. And so now, Lord, may we respond to our confession and may we repent. That is, may we turn and live anew in a holy life. May we get to work on the house of the Lord. May we not feel guilty about the times in which we pay attention to our own. Just may we rightly prioritize our homes. Rightly prioritize you over and against everything else. May we be at work in the fields. May we be about your work. And may we always be reminded that such calls come from a loving and gracious Father that wants to return. Thank you for Jesus that makes it all possible. We celebrate Him. And we pray in His name. Amen.